Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. Uh, my name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Uh, delighted to have back with me once again Sports Pro print editor Mike Long. Hi, Mike. Hi, Owen. How are you doing? Good to be back. How has your week been, Mike, your sports industry week? Oh, it's been eventful, Owen. It's been a, a week full of um, events. What have, I, what have I done? I can't remember what I did this weekend. It was so long ago, it seems. Um, <laughs> but lots of sport, lots of sporting events to talk about, of course. Well, um, there, yeah, there are sporting events to talk about that did happen and maybe shouldn't, uh, and sporting events that didn't happen yeah. that certainly should. Let's start with... Um, uh, Friday night, uh, Black Friday, everyone had just been, you know, rushing around retail stores in the internet and stuff in hopes of uh, getting discounts that may or may not have been bogus. Um, and then they thought they would, uh, they'd stump up their, their $20 and, and watch Tiger Woods play Phil Mickelson uh, in an 18-hole match play in Las Vegas. Except it didn't cost them anything, did it, Owen? It didn't, because... Um, uh, Bleacher Report Live was it Turner Sports digital service uh, offering pay-per-view access or not, as the case may well have proven. And people then just, they just, the unusual step, they just kind of opened the paywall to it. And yeah, those people who were successful in paying to watch uh, to watch golf's least necessary match play contest, they, they got a refund this morning, I think. Yeah, and it seems this was a technical issue with the with the payments, uh, yeah. the payment function, not the live streams itself. Not the live stream, yeah. Live streams work just fine once it got going, uh, but as you say, an entirely unnecessary match anyway that didn't go all down down too well with uh, with hardened fans and casual fans alike. The uh, images that flew around before the event in the in the promotional events leading up to it of these two. Very well compensated, very wealthy, high-profile golfers parading their riches or the, the, the riches they have been promised, this uh, $9 million uh, winner-takes-all prize, posing behind uh, stacks of cash uh, is, uh, as the Americans like to say, poor optics, surely, isn't it? Yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of an odd choice. I think to offer a bit of devil's advocacy, I would say that it got people talking about it, you know, an event that maybe had got slightly forgotten over the you know the weeks since it was announced over the summer you have two two guys with a huge bank of uh of fame and uh and success behind them but perhaps not at the peak of their games would it be fair to say yeah one of the uh yeah one of the arguments many people said was this this happened a decade too late and i uh i tend to agree with that yeah and that picture going viral i think as 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 kind of crass as it looked, uh, maybe, maybe brought a few people back into the conversation. But I think what was unusual about it was, yeah, as you say, they they've been they've been, you know, pretty well paid through their whole career. I think making it about a slightly arbitrary sum of money rather than about the the kind of rivalry between the two was, uh, yeah. I don't know, it felt unnecessary. It wasn't life changing for either of them. It wasn't like you know, and and was oddly downplayed then by Mickelson who said that it was all about bragging rights and so well you know maybe maybe give the money away then in that case right. Phil 
had these side bait, uh, side bets going on, didn't they? The closest to pin challenges and whatnot throughout the throughout the round uh, that did go to charity, but I think it amounted to about six hundred grand, which is mm. uh, the far cry from the nine million that that Mickelson pocketed. Yeah, uh, as you say, it's not a life changing sum for him, surely. So, surely that money could have been better spent elsewhere, but. Yeah. yeah, I think off the course, I think it's worth us uh, talking about the the kind of experiment that it was for Turner uh, with, you know, showing golf in a, in a different light, I suppose, in a different format and a you know, huge uh, betting component involved. But it remains to see, be seen whether this was a worthwhile experiment for them, given they've obviously assumed it. The, uh, the 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 costs involved of, of, of staging the event and uh, you know how the, with the refunds that are being issued due to that technical glitch you know certainly wouldn't wouldn't have been a uh, money making uh, venture for them. Yeah, and it wasn't pay per view anywhere outside the US either. It ended up on uh, on Sky Sports here in the UK. Yeah, it wasn't. It didn't kind of have that feeling of a, a must watch event, even though I feel like quite a lot of golf fans ended up watching it against their their better nature. It was an intriguing thing, obviously finishing in the dark and a lot of focus on uh, on 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 two players in particular. Um, I don't know. It's it's an intriguing one for for golf taking the kind of competitive and and financial element out of it. The, the presentational bit, you know, following two notable stars around. I mean, one of the things that Discovery has talked about and the PGA Tour have talked about and in, in how they're going to look at presenting golf digitally is to do with following certain groups around I guess there's also the certainty of having you know knowing which players are going to be there knowing what's at stake when you when you start a day uh, of, of golf stripping out the competitive nature of uh, of golf and uh, going with certainty which is um, not going to fly with everyone well I mean if you got the stakes right then maybe you could do something that was more this kind of you know boxing style promotional face off but it's just I don't know I don't know where it had come from I don't know why after yeah after all these years there was suddenly it is some strange. groundswell of um of interest in seeing you know well people were got... crying out for this were they absolutely no as you, as you said at the start this was entirely unnecessary and, and and given the fact that these guys compete on a on a circuit you know on a on a global tour week after week Anyway, it's not as if you know you have this long lead-in period for promotion and whatnot to to really generate interest and and, and sell those pay-per-view buys in and and whatnot. There's you know the and and as we've said all along, you know this the the the, the Woods Mickelson uh, rivalry is uh, certainly not what it once was. And as you say, I think perhaps efforts it would have been you know better to uh, to focus on that rivalry uh, anyway. Even if it's not so strong than the than the arbitrary amount of money on on offer, who knows? Who knows? But yeah, it will be. Well, we we shall see whether any elements of it are kind of co-opted into any uh, any other kind of golf coverage. And certainly, the the kind of in-play betting might be a, a worthwhile exercise. You know, as far as the the nascent betting market in the U.S. goes. Mm. Um, but again, that doesn't necessarily make many people feel better about about the whole enterprise. Um, but at least that one happened. The other the other big showdown, the biggest in in world soccer, that uh, in in terms of context and in in a great many years uh, in club soccer in a great many years 
between Boca Juniors and River Plate. We are at the time of speaking, still waiting to hear when that is going to happen, if that is going to happen. But it certainly didn't when everybody was waiting for it to happen on on Saturday night. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, so the the, the Boca Junior, Juniors players not well enough to play on on Saturday after their bus was infiltrated by police issued tear gas um, accidentally, and then. Conmebol and FIFA apparently very keen to get the game going on Saturday, which meant that we were waiting on Saturday for, to see if it would happen. I think the whole postponing to Sunday and now postponing kind of indefinitely at the at the time of uh, at the time of recording. Yeah, and as you say, they obviously um, you know they tried to get the game on 24 hours later, and there was a big push to do so, and fans were allowed into the uh, into the stadium. Within a half an hour, I believe, later, the game was ultimately called off, which just smacks of uh, kind of poor communication between the, the various kind of organisers involved and a uh, sense of disorganisation within the whole thing. But, um, yeah, shocking scenes all around. I mean, we've seen this kind of happen in, um, you know, in the English game or in the, you know, the Champions League for sure. Uh, I think was it Liverpool, Man City last year. Something similar, I suppose, where a team bus was um, attacked, uh, attacked by rival um, or opposition fans. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, it's a sad, uh, sad turn of events, I suppose, for one of the most kind of highly anticipated and fiercest uh, rivalries and, and matches in South American uh, South American soccer. But certainly, you, it couldn't be the occasion that it was going to be. I mean, the the eyes of the world's media. Uh, on Buenos Aires and um, uh, yeah, on this unique occasion, and it won't happen again because you know, as of next year, Conmebol is switching the Copa Libertadores final to a one-off match, and it can happen in other countries. I mean, you you mentioned the the Liverpool Man City game. I'm, I'm the one that springs to mind for me was uh, West Ham when they were saying goodbye to Upton Park mm. uh, with a, a you know a, a big showpiece Premier League game against Man United that almost didn't happen because uh, some some East Londoners set about the United team bus and and you know there was there was talk about whether that was going to take place so it can happen it was it's you know unfortunate timing unfortunate management unfortunate uh, actions from from a minority of, of fans who'd been kind of I guess become part of this occasion that had become more fraught than it could possibly handle but yeah, a real shame for, for South American soccer. A shame because, as well, you know, we've talked in recent weeks about what will happen with the Club World Cup. We talked about, you know, existing club structures and context and history and everything else and how you expand beyond the, the European kind of super base of power that's that's built up. So, yeah, that's where we are. Uh, another competition that will be changing, taking place in its last... Uh, for the last time in its existing form, the Davis Cup, Mike. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, the final um, final finals, I suppose, took place mm. last weekend in Lille between France and Croatia. The second major uh, final between the two countries this year, of course, after the uh, World Cup in Russia. Um, Croatia won, but all of the talk, uh, as ever, around the Davis Cup was... You know, t- centered on not what was t- placed on the court, but but instead uh, the ongoing uh, uh, upheaval or overhaul of the event off the court. You see uh, Cosmos Tennis coming in, 
uh, signing a deal with the ITF uh, worth $3 billion over 25 years to, to operate the event from next year onwards. Uh, the move to a kind of World Cup style week-long 18-nation uh, tournament from next year. And it's fair to say there has been, Owen, a pretty, pretty negative backlash uh, within the tennis community, really, and and not least the the French who were who were very unhappy, the French players, the French coaching staff, very unhappy with the changes, and they and they um, aired their grievances to the ITF and the, uh, the ITF's president Dave Haggerty last weekend. There were um, RIP Davis Cup banners in the stands, and uh, a lot of people pretty annoyed that they, you know, the, the governing body of, of tennis appear to be selling the soul, selling the tradition of uh, what is a 118-year-old uh, competition in favour of, of of money and a uh, a suave football player with a um, pop star girlfriend. Gerard Piquet yeah. and Shakira. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one, the Davis Cup, because when it works, it seems to be just brilliant it's unique and it's it inspires these feelings of kind of i don't know kind of quite there's a lot of goodwill but there's a lot of passion around it but it feels like it only becomes relevant when it's relevant and it's a tournament that players kind of switch on and off when they want to win it i mean i remember there being a feeling a few years ago the the draw had opened up for great britain and so andy murray decided right this year i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a really good go um Roger Federer doing similar with with Switzerland and yeah. you know it doesn't feel like something it feels like something that's on every player's bucket list but not something that they are determined to go out and and play in every every available game um yeah, yeah. and it's a bit unwieldy and it's a bit difficult to follow until it all starts coming together the kind of quarterfinal stage onwards but at the same time it's yeah you are losing something by just making another tournament that's takes place over a week or so and and it's obviously now in conflict with this atp cup tournament in in january of each following year and it's just really hard to see what the end game is for for either of of those organizations in all of that and there's there's some talk that um that there's discussions going on behind the scenes about potentially merging the two tournaments and I, i struggle to make sense of that decision uh, certainly seems like a you know an unwanted uh, compromise for both parties. Uh, certainly a concession on behalf of the ITF. I think one of the big problems here is that obviously the timing, given that the you know the Davis Cup finals will come at the end of a long 11-month season, and then less than six weeks later the ATP will will get together in Australia 2020 for the first ATP Cup. Just just awful awful um, scheduling, I suppose. Uh, mm. The scheduling of the tennis calendar is always a, a, a bone of contention for any, everyone in the game anyway. Uh, you throw in Roger Federer's um, Labour Cup competition, which takes place just after the US Open. And yet you, you struggle to see how men's tennis, the, the sport in general, can kind of sustain and support three team competitions of this nature. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, but in terms of Cosmos, I mean, you know, speaking to the team at Cosmos uh, recently, uh, you know, obviously they're very confident that they can um, they can win people over. You know, they talk of uh, creating a kind of um, all new experience with a, a you know different in arena elements thrown in there, as well as the kind of changing format. Uh, you know, Spain is certainly a strong market for for men's tennis. Uh, they're confident that they can um, 
so so their finals are going there to Madrid next year and the uh, and the year after. You know, they're a Spanish team. They've got uh, former players involved, Spanish executives involved. They they know the market. They're very confident in in, in what they're doing. Got some got some wealthy backers, but yeah, there there remains that that uh, in, you know sizable challenge, I suppose, mm. winning over those. The, the hardcore tennis fans, you know, ultimately that they are the fans of the Davis Cup, you know. Yeah, I wonder, Mike, if you and I were to start a um, team tennis competition. Yeah. Don't know where we get the backing from. We're, we're not particularly, um, you know, neither of us have any accounting qualifications or MBAs or really much of a presence at all in the business of tennis. But say we were to uh, to, to to accomplish such a feat. What would the case be for a tournament that combined the Davis Cup, the Fed Cup, the Fed Cup, and the Hopman Cup, and and you know you had a a full on week or two week showpiece for for national team tennis that brought everybody together, um, and you kind of united the two calendars in that way. What would what would you say to that? I would say that would be a, a fascinating prospect. I think there'd be a lot of support for that among fans and spectators. I think sponsors would be very interested in that. Uh, within tennis, I think you're going to struggle to get people on board with that idea. We've obviously seen a lot of uh, debate, certainly in recent years, over the kind of uh, division of prize money and things like that in the in the sports and the disparity that exists between men and women. There'd be a lot of issues on that front, perhaps. I don't know. And then it's obviously navigating the, the notoriously difficult politics of the sport, getting everyone on board with it. And then finally, how do you find a time in the calendar to make something like that work? Um, yeah, so uh, there would be there would be a lot to think about. Uh, but I'm saying that that would certainly excite me. Owen. What, what are your thoughts? It, it's It's been overlooked a fair bit. That's what I would say that conversation and, and certainly one of the big appeals of the Grand Slams are is that, you know, all the best players are there, not just the best men's players, not just the best women's players, um, but all of them. And why not, if you're gonna create a kind of World Cup format, why not bring everybody together? But well, there we go. Why not in every sport then, you know, in in football or, you know, combine some of the other major sports out there where they, where you have the division of men and women. Because the model already exists in the Grand Slams, just as it does in the Olympics mm. and in World Athletics Championships and stuff like that. Yeah, as as importantly and actually perhaps uh, more realistically, the uh, prospect of men and women getting together in golf is probably more likely, uh, given the LPGA and PGA Tour are kind of supposedly exploring such things, and they well they certainly have. I believe it hasn't come to fruition, but uh, in, in terms of an officially sanctioned ranking points event, but certainly I, I, I think in principle the the prospect of yeah more you know men's and women's sides of, of the same sport getting together and kind of sharing in the benefits that that would entail is mm. an interesting one. The match between Michel Wee and Jim Furyk. Indeed. Right. I think that's a, that's a suitably terrible idea on which to finish. <laughs> um, on which to finish uh, the first, first part of uh, this week's podcast uh, join us again after this
welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. A um, couple of bits under the radar that people might have missed. The ICC World 2020 uh, women's version ended on Sunday with Australia taking the title. That's going to change its name. Oh, yeah. Uh, ICC T20 World Cup as of the next two editions, men's and women's editions, both occurring separately uh, in Australia uh, in 2020. Um, so there you go, the 2020-2020 World Cup coming to the Antipodes. Um, ICC have made a point of saying it's about acknowledging that this is a serious form of, of cricket that um, that demands a, a World Cup, but I don't know that it's really anything other than just acknowledging how people say it anyway. Other bits, your friend and mine, uh, IOC member Sheikh Ahmad Al-Fahad Al-Sabah, the kingmaker. Let's call him the kingmaker. Yep. He uh, temporarily suspended from all IOC activities. The IOC executive board choosing to recognise his kind of self-exile uh, in the wake of his uh, charges for, was it forgery? Something about some forgery so. colluding to, to try and uh, uh, try and besmirch a, a public official. So, yeah, he's not going to be doing any kingmaking for the time being. Uh, something else that we... We didn't mention last week, Mike, was um, obviously, again, it, it's coming home. You know, Nations League glory, mm. UEFA Nations League glory is, uh, is, is within sight for England's, uh, England's football team after they beat Croatia at Wembley, what, about 10 days ago. And it's been, uh, it's been, a, it's been an interesting year for English soccer on and off the pitch, obviously exceeding expectations in Russia earlier this year, bringing together uh, the English public once again behind their national team uh, through, you know, quite a quite a smartly executed communications and marketing campaign, as well as through the kind of uh, performance and the humility of those involved in the summer. That's been followed by a, a debate over the funding of grassroots soccer, the proper place of the national stadium, Wembley Stadium, which, of course, was the subject of a bid which uh, the FA's executives were keen to accept from Shahid Khan, the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars and Fulham, uh, but ultimately decided it wouldn't be uh, received well enough by FA council members. So they, they passed that up. Also this year, uh, the Women's Super League, the top tier of women's professional soccer in England, going professional, fully professional for the first time. Every, every team in that top tier is professional now as are some in the in the tier below. Kelly Simmons was, until a couple of years ago, was the head of women's football for the FA, uh, moved into a developmental role where she was responsible for driving up participation, and then moved back in September to her current role as director of the women's professional game. Um, I caught up with her about a week or so ago at Victoria Station, where Mars had erected a huge, I don't know what you'd describe it as, like a video penalty shootout game where people were going up and just smacking the ball at this video screen. Uh, Farah Williams, the England national team player, was there trying to show people how to score the perfect penalty. But yeah, Mars choosing the middle of rush hour in Victoria Station. That was bold, but um, certainly... <laughs> Certainly some attention for that. But anyway, I was there and met up with Kelly Simmons uh, to discuss uh, the future of the women's game in England and also talk about some of those debates 
earlier this year around grassroots funding and uh, and the strategy for participation. Let's take a listen. So Kelly Simmons, thank you very much for joining us. You, you've, you've recently moved across from director of participation role of the FA to, to um, looking at the women's professional game again, kind of more um, uh, more intently. But what were what were some of the lessons that you learned about the state of play at the grassroots for, for English soccer and, and you know some of the some of the things that need to happen in order to to get more people involved in the game? Sure. So I think um, when you well, first of all, you know, 11 million people play some form. Of football, so grassroots football is still, you know, it's huge. It's very much uh, the nation's game in this country, and we know that if we can get the right offer, more and more people will play, or they'll they'll either come back and play, or they'll uh, play more frequently. And I guess that, you know, that's very much what about what the uh, FA and Mars Just Play programs about in children's football. It's growing, flourishing. You know, more and more. We've got last year we had the highest number ever recorded affiliated youth teams. Uh, 11-a-side football has been in decline for some time in the men's game because um, a lot of a lot of the research is saying that people just haven't got the time to commit to kind of nine months of the year, play every week, and all that sort of organisation that goes around it. It's still a lot of that. It's still a massive format of football, but we know that if we can break down those barriers, people will turn up and play. So this is about breaking down all of those barriers around organising it, having to commit for months and months on end. You literally can just turn up on the night and get your fix of football and if you can't go the next week because you're working that's fine you can go the week after it's so flexible and that's why I think you know the just play program has been so successful is because it's kind of meeting the needs of those who can't play 11 side football or commit to you know six eight weeks of a five side league so yeah. it's kind of another offer that's proven to be really popular and over a million we had a million people turning up across the years through the partnership on you know men and women right through to walking football turning up and getting their their fix of football and having fun and being healthy. I mean, is that pretty consistent with what works in, in driving participation? You look at things like Park Run and, you know, kind of democratising the, the whole thing. Yeah, I think it's about understanding that one size, you know, one size doesn't fit all. So, um, you know, we know that, you know, children uh, will commit to football and play every week. As they get older and exam pressures come in, we know there's a drop-off in sport and football, so we're very much encouraging clubs to kind of offer recreational football and more flexible opportunities adults we know there's thousands who play 11 aside football and for them that's you know the the game and the smell of the grass and all of those things but we know that there's a lot of people that that just doesn't work for so you know people have got increasingly they're working weekends they've got more you know there's a more equal share of family responsibilities and childcare, and that going away and playing a whole day of football um is you know it's not appropriate for doesn't fit a lot of people's lives you know that sort of key time when a lot of people are playing so this you know after work dipping when you can really does work so I think it's making sure we've got offers that fit different you know different people's needs. Now a conversation that came up a lot in the last well we're looking a few weeks back now but um, around the sale of Wembley was was the funding of, of facilities at the grassroots I mean without kind of relitigating the the um, you know some of the conversations around that sale. What are what are the things that need to be done to um, to address that shortfall, and, and what can the FA do uh, to bring other stakeholders together? Yeah, so I think um, you know obviously the FA is not a prof- profit organisation. Our money all goes back into football. You know we invest over 50 million a year back into grassroots football, but 
um, you know, and, and a good chunk of that goes to the Football Foundation and it's matched by government and matched by the Premier League. But I think when you look at the challenge of facilities, we know local authorities can't afford, you know, a lot of local authorities can't afford to invest in, they can't afford to maintain facilities. It's, you know, it's quite chronic in some areas and we've got a massive shortage of 3G pitches. So it's, you know, personally, as somebody who's been, you know, passionate about grassroots football and worked in grassroots football for a long time, I thought it was a, a shame um, that we couldn't, uh, you know, that the deal, uh, I suppose, has come off the table for now. Um, because, uh, you know, when you go out, and, you know, we do the grassroots service, when you go out and meet the clubs, you know, the biggest thing they want is good quality pitches, third generation pitches to train on, third generation pitches to put these sorts of activities on, because more and more people want to play in the week, we know that. Um, access to really good quality training facilities for young players, help them develop. It's, it's huge, it's a massive, massive uh, challenge for the game. I mean, it's, I it's grassroots football's biggest challenge. And um, so I think, you know, what, obviously we're investing millions, we'll continue to invest millions through the Football Foundation and our partners. We'll work really hard to try and get that money um, to be matched locally to, to invest in the game and, um, and, and keep, yeah, trying to sort of prioritise where we think that money's going to have the biggest impact. And do you... Do you think that the, the 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 fact that that sale was a possibility and that windfall might have been there has that reignited some of the conversations that you were having previously about funding and about? Um... I think I've moved on now. You know, so I'm in a different role now. So I know, you know, I've, I've sort of been seen in the press of you know discussions. I think Martin's sort of talked about you know are there other options, other ways of trying to find more money? Um, you know, sure. You know, we'll look, the FA will be thinking thinking about how can maximise investment, uh, you know, now that the sale's not going ahead, how can it try and maximise uh, investment into into grassroots facilities, but um, there still is, you know, multi-millions in the Football Foundation and there are still new pitches, new third generation pitches, pitch improvements going on across the country, so um, obviously not quite at the scale as it would have been. <laughs> now another, another factor in improving participation is um, you know, furthering inclusivity, getting more girls playing yeah. uh, in particular yeah. has been a target yeah. for the FA. You've moved back into the, the women's game um, exclusively now, yeah. heading up the, the professional women's game at the FA. How important is it for young girls to have recognisable figureheads to follow, to have role models in the sport? Yeah, I think it's hugely important because I think we've broken down a lot of barriers around what's what's deemed to be a girls sport to play and what's deemed to be a boys sport uh, a lot of those cultural barriers have been broken down but you know they are still there um, and so kind of normalizing women's football is really really important to show girls that you know it's, it's great to play that if you want to you know if you're good and you're committed you can go all the way through and play for England and travel the world be a professional footballer like Farris here today um, or you can play for fun and just have a really good time, make friends, be healthy, um, and that's fine. And this generation, you know, there's loads of opportunities right across the country, whether it's just turn up and play Wildcats centres that are proving really popular across the country. And I went to watch one on Saturday, actually. Um, girls, you know, learning skills, having fun, playing small-sided games, getting a, getting a good quality introduction to the game. You know, they might become... England's players of the future, they might become recreational players, they might become fans that follow the Women's Super League and England. So getting those girls into football is really, really important. What are the biggest challenges as you see them for the women's professional game at that elite level? What's the next step that it needs to take? So I think 
obviously we've gone professional this year, fully professional, so that's a big, big step forward and that's exciting. What, what I've said sort of coming in to the new role is well, a couple of things really. One, um, you know, in terms of women's sport in this country, there's been some improvement in profile, but it tends to be those big pinnacle events like World Cups, Olympics, and then in terms of domestic top level competition, you get very, very little cut through compared to, you know, up against men, uh, men's sport. And um, I genuinely think the Women's Super League can be the one that breaks through. Um, and we can make these players household names and we can really build the fan base, um, build attendances, also build um, the numbers of people following on TV and, and following those teams. We've got, you know, big, big clubs with a big investment from the clubs and a real commitment from them. Um, you know, Manchester United has been talked about a lot. You know, Arsenal playing fabulous football. Uh, Chelsea, you know, off the back of a really successful season last year. So some real investment, right, not just in the women's team, but in the whole kind of structure of the club. So a really exciting time, I think, you know, for the women's game. But what we've got to focus on over the next five years, I think, is, um, you know, a huge reliant on men's football money. And with that, our risks, um, you know, change of ownership, relegation, uh, budget cuts, you know, can impact, we've seen it impact the women's game. So we've got to start to work together. What I said to the clubs at our conference last week is we've got to start to really work together on how we're going to try and grow revenue to make the league and the club, the women's clubs, more sustainable. It doesn't mean moving away from men's football, far from it. All of that expertise and resource and facilities and infrastructure is, is what's helping us deliver professional uh, women's football. But um, I think it's about starting to, over a period of time, you know, get our get the foundations right to grow revenue so we're a bit more protected from uh, what happens in the men's game. Where do you think those opportunities are going to come from? Uh, sponsorship, obviously, broadcast revenue over a period of time as we build. So we've got to build the audience, um, which will help in terms of broadcast revenues longer term. Um, and the clubs are increasingly starting to think about their rights that they hold and either um, selling uh, the, the women's team rights as part of an overall package, but with attributable value, or in some cases going out to find their own commercial partners as well and just starting to, to commercialise again just to help I suppose, make it more secure, more sustainable. Obviously you, you talked about wanting to move away, or not move away from, but kind of support the game between these big tentpole events, but how important an opportunity is something like a Women's World Cup in 2019? Yeah, no, hugely important. So, um, you know, we know, so when uh, England were in the semi-final, uh, it was on Channel 4 of the Euros, three years ago, two years ago. Where are I think it was last year. World Cup's next year, so it was <laughs> last year, it was last year. <laughs> It's always been a long day, and I've not, I've not had enough World coffee. Cup was three years. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course it was, because Farah's here. She was there. Got us the bronze medal. Let's start that again. <laughs> Last year in the Euro semis, uh, Channel Four, four million people watching England. I remember with BBC, you've got the rights this time. When they had the rights to the World Cup, and the, we were kicking off at midnight, they were really pleased with you know like a couple of million people following England in the middle of the night so you think it's on BBC you know we can get a good run in the tournament you know in terms of audience and people seeing maybe seeing women's football the first time seeing the Lionesses the first time seeing the level and the quality uh, making these players some of them are that kind of our household names but you know building the profile of those players and then you know it's our job to try and with the clubs try and get people then to come and follow them back in the club so it's, it's a massive opportunity to showcase the top of the game really and, yeah. and keep you know inspiring girls to play and people to get behind the game as fans 
and what's going to go into that kind of conversion strategy? I mean, and what have you learned from the World Cup three years ago and, and from uh, Euro 2017? Mm-hmm. I think it's, well, we've put marketing, so we've invested in marketing offices in the clubs and the clubs are investing as well. So our sort of marketing strategies uh, are better integrated into clubs, utilising all their channels, better links with the FA. So we've got kind of you know, marketing team at the FA, marketing people in the clubs um, and it's about us I guess you know kind of making sure that we as fans follow the World Cup they know all those opportunities to signpost the next step which would be to come back and watch the Super League and 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 draw you know utilize that opportunity through the clubs to get people in locally to watch the game so um, yeah it's a, it's, it's a big opportunity for us thanks very much Kelly <laughs> all right cheers thank you very much Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Final part of the Sports Pro podcast. Mike, do you play chess? I haven't played chess for several years and uh, I have to say I don't watch it and don't often think about it, but I do know that the World Chess Championships is in London right now. It is. It is. Do you play chess? I, similarly, I'm I'm a bit of a lapsed chess player. I had, um, when I was a kid, early 90s, my uncle had, ironically, a, a Garry Kasparov automated chess set that would it would pick the moves for you um the same gary kasparov then lost to a computer so there you go there you go landmarks in in artificial intelligence history the the gary kasparov home chess set and deep blue where do i watch chess if i want to watch chess um well for the last couple of weeks you would have been watching it at the college at hoban where the world chess championship final has been taking place between magnus carlson and Fabiano Carana uh, of the USA, the Norwegian world champion and his American challenger, world number one and two. And you'd have been able to watch it there. You'd have been able to watch it on NRK in Norway. You you, you get out to Norway much? Uh, I haven't been for a few years, actually, but I must go back. It's lovely. Yeah, well, you'd be able to watch it on free-to-air television there. Um, elsewhere, uh, it is available on OTT platforms, and you're able to kind of follow, like, digital boards on... Uh, you know, on a, on a wide range of, of media services. But, um, yeah, a, a man who is much better placed to explain all of that than me uh, is Ilya Merenzon, who is the president of World Chess, which is the promoter of uh, of the World Chess Championship finals. Uh, and they do that on behalf of FIDA, which is the, the global uh, governing body. I, Mike, was in Hoban last week, and uh, I went and spoke to Ilya at the World Championships, and he was able to much better explain some of the some of the commercial strategy, some of what is available to chess fans, and just the way that they are kind of bringing together technology and digital connectivity and, and various other elements to, to reunite a, a, the big global chess audience that exists. Okay, cool. Let's have a listen. Ilya Melanzon, thanks for joining us. What's the what's the commercial concept that you've worked up for for this event in London? What have you 
been trying to achieve with that? Well, uh, we are in the business of uh, developing and monetizing chess, so we are using all uh, artillery, we're shooting from all cannons we, we can. And basically the model involves uh, five uh, vectors of uh, revenue, uh, ranging from uh, tickets to online uh, pay-per-view, to advertising, to sponsorship, to um, merchandising, and to media rights. So we're using all of it, and it's basically up to us uh, whether it's going to be very, very successful or uh, not successful at all. Let's look at the sponsorship first of all. I mean, what kind of a showcase do you think a World Chess Championship uh, provides for, for some of the partner brands that you've got involved with this, with Kaspersky and, and, and some of the other companies? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, I, I uh, genuinely think that chess is maybe the most underappreciated sport in terms of sponsorship uh, in the business because the pricing uh, and uh, cost of let's say contact is so far lower than anything you could expect uh, compared to anything else. Then it's a very it's like a diamond in the rough. But um, having said that, we also need to understand that um, sponsorship in any sport or in any business. Is a is a huge uh, effort by both the sponsoree and the sponsor. So the case is phenomenal, but it so much depends on the sponsor how to promote it and how to monetize it and how to build on it. That um, uh, I'll give you two examples. For example, Kaspersky is an obvious partner because uh, they are in the digital space, just like chess and showcase and uh, the fact that they are actually helping with securing the championship is pretty spectacular and um, but also they have substantial b2b uh, plans and their sales are mainly b2b or at least substantially b2b so they're using it also as a b2b uh, opportunity another example is uh, pens by st dupont uh, where we partnered with them and they produce special um, World Chess Championship uh, pens, which are used by the players, and also they did a limited edition, which was sold out uh, in a few hours, and uh, it's uh, millions of pounds uh, worth of pens. But the way they did it, they kind of uh, they have three partnerships. One is with uh, Chess, the other is with 007, and the third is with uh, Star Wars. Uh, and I was very, very happy that uh, we signed up, just because we wanted to see how we act on retail level, and it worked out really, really well. So, but they uh, put a lot of work into produ producing limited editions, marketing and selling it, delivering it, uh, and uh, so it very much depends on the partner. But uh, in terms of sponsorship, I think it's a phenomenal uh, platform just because it's um, it's one of very very few sports which define the times we live in can you name a uh, world champion in fencing can you name the world champion in curling um, there are only few sports in each country where you can kind of name uh, top people but on international level there are only very very few maybe one tennis player or two tennis players one swimmer one runner and one chess player maybe a boxer now mma but it's a very very elite group of uh, people and um, all the other sports I mentioned are by far more expensive. Mm. Would you, commercially anyway, would you consider yourself to be working in the sports space or in more in the kind of cultural space? Well actually that's the debate we're having all, almost every day when we drink wine. In terms of top events like 
this one definitely a sport uh, event there is no question but uh, the magic of chess is that it also kind of exists on cultural space and uh, an entertainment space and uh, political space and uh, when these events are not uh, taking place then definitely it's a culture uh, and stuff like that so it's a little bit of uh, a hybrid between a computer game, a Nobel Prize, and a visit to a church. Uh, so you have to actually position it in both or in all these uh, verticals. In the arena, what's the kind of experience that you've set up here? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's unique. There's not really anything that you can quite compare it to as a live event because, you know, you have the complete silence, the, the real intensity of those people in the, in the venue. Yeah, uh, we actually studied uh, in great detail how people want to uh, visit a chess event. And um, it was an adventure for us because we, first of all, thought that they really want to see the players, which is not the case. Uh, they are interested to be able to say that we saw the players, but it mainly is for a selfie-driven uh, experience. They are not interested in seeing them all the time um, then we thought maybe they want to play themselves so we set up this area where they can play uh, maybe we wanted to, maybe they wanted to listen to commentary so we set up this amazing commentary but in reality they really want to play against Magnus and Fabiano this is what uh, their kind of main uh, goal is so we tried uh, to set up the experience so it kind of feels as close as it is so there are teams of players like their father, uh, their trainer, their coach, in the venue. And that's what we wanted to shoot for. Uh, and uh, in Europe, for example, we set up separate rooms for the teams. And they've been sitting in those rooms, uh, kind of being nervous. But now they can't. Not because we don't have enough rooms, uh, but we really wanted them to be with the people. So they can see their reaction, they can uh, listen to them uh, discuss it. This is what people really kind of want, uh, and imagine coming up to father of Magnus Carlsen or to uh, I don't know a manager of, of uh, Fabiano Corana and discussing the game while the game is taking place. So we set up different kinds of things, and it looks a little bit uh, like like a multi-layer experience, mm. uh, and that's why people are spending here uh, uh, more than four or five hours per day. Mm. And you have about a couple of hundred people in the in the, no, the capacity place. is 450 people, mm -hmm. so we have uh, that, my, that many. All mm. um, tickets are sold. And, and away from uh, away from the venue, obviously, what strategies have you come up with to uh, to, to bring people into the action um, digitally and and, and Yeah, uh, you know what? When I started uh, working on chess. My main goal, I was kind of uh, trying to define my job, and my job, I thought, was to make chess interesting. And uh, I kind of, com I was completely failing in it, until I realized that it's a, it's an absolutely dumb uh, approach because uh, the audience of chess is so big anyway that uh, making it more in interesting is going to only marginally affect the audience because it's already a billion people or more. So why, why would I want to increase it? I mean, it's already huge. It's already bigger than pretty much any sport you can imagine, and uh, it's even more than uh, more people play chess, and there are sub subscribers to Kim Kardashian's. 
also Twitter. So it's a very big uh, audience. So our goal was to give uh, these people a product because there is this audience. So let's give them something they want. So we engage them, and we're trying rather to engage them on very, very uh, different levels, ranging from. Uh, uh, introducing emoji into broadcast. Uh, there are people who have completely oblivious to a uh, chess notation, but they understand what turtle is or the skull. Or um, so this by far was the most turtle-intensive uh, tournament <laughs> ever. Uh, but also uh, doing designed uh, merchandise, uh, we designed our design. Uh, let's say partner is Pentagram who are famous for uh, doing amazing stuff. They did the design of Tiffany or Chase Bank uh, and stuff like that. So imagine this creative um, genius is uh, pondering over the uh, best design of chess sets. It is pretty spectacular. So we have leather ones. I think they proposed the snake uh, ones. We'll see about the snake. <laughs> but also we're clearly acting uh, actively in a digital uh, platform. Uh, we introduced this app which is based on dating. So we did the uh, chess version of Tinder where you choose uh, an opponent. Mm -hmm. And if you like, you if you like, if there is a match, you can meet them uh, for an hour. You have an hour to agree to meet and to play chess, which was phenomenally successful. We were surprised. Uh, now people use it actually all over the world and we discovered that uh, there was an issue with finding a partner. You could also, you can easily do it online, and you absolutely cannot do it over the board. So in case you're sitting here and really want to play with somebody, now there is an app. So this is to meet mates. someone and then play them physically. Physically. Yeah. What's the what's the kind of user base for that? Uh, you mean uh, how many, who's going? Uh, yeah. To how many users roughly does that have? Uh, well, we just launched it uh, a couple of days before the championship, and uh, we had over. 200,000 downloads, so it's it's pretty big. Of course, it's not millions, but we haven't started promoting it heavily, and it hasn't. It's been there for only a week, but we know that uh, a huge number of other sports came to us saying, "Hey guys, can we add uh, football or tennis uh, to this thing?" So yeah, finding a partner is an issue, and uh, if we can help it, great. We also uh, introduced pay-per-view. Which is a big deal because uh, in chess you never had to pay for anything. It was a very, very kind of uh, free uh, experience. So we are trying to make it as commercial as possible, and uh, we're just adding chess to other sport roster of other sports, which are uh, using pay-per-view to a huge success. Of course, there are people who are hate who hate us for a specific reason, but um, we're not uh, trying to be liked by everyone but rather we're trying to build it in a sustainable, commercial, long-term way. Because you know, like with kids, you know that uh, if, let's say, a kid or a child puts a hand in the fire, they will burn. But at some point you have to maybe let them do a little bit of that, unless it's very dangerous, because they have to learn, otherwise they won't believe you. So in our case it's exactly the same. We know for sure that uh, pay-per-view is going to be the main uh, driver of chess in the future. But of course people are a little bit reluctant to pay for something they used to get for free. But if you don't make it sustainable, then you can't have events in London. You will have them in places where you really don't want to have them. Mm. What, let's talk a little bit about this event specifically. What's your what's the strategy for the for the the championship final itself? Obviously, it's you know there's a lot of romance historically around it. People like 
Bobby Fischer and, and Gary Kasparov and you have in Magnus Carlsen a player with a lot of cut through in, in mainstream media. What was your approach to, to promoting this? Well, um, we introduced this uh, logo a year ago, which became a huge instant Instagram uh, moment where they called it Kama Sutra, uh, which was nice. Uh, but it's not only that. Basically, there is a cycle uh, which is uh, culminate, culminating in the championship. So everybody were curious who is going to be the semi-finalists and who's going to be the finalists so it's been building up effectively and our job was to promote it in the sense that uh, to have the best events possible so people would get excited about the, even the semi-finals and uh, we couldn't be happier with the result just because um, it's number two against number one it's like maybe the closest chess ever gotten to Mohamed Ali versus uh, Joe Fraser you can't even think about this. For example, last uh, championship, which was also quite uh, big, uh, number one was playing against number nine. So there was not too much uh, suspense, even though it, the games were very, very uh, aggressive mm. and chess was beautiful. Uh, nobody kind of questioned the result. Now everyone is questioning the result. And therefore the atmosphere and the kind of drama is... Uh, substantial part of the sport but come on it's a sport it's not uh, it's not uh, I don't know it's not some it's not a kindergarten so it, there is real drama and um, I think it'll uh, just increase mm. now we, we don't need to talk about machine learning and AI when it comes to chess you know um, it's not a new topic it's something that obviously changed the sport forever 20 years ago but what role is that kind of technology going to have in in the community? Is there is there a possibility of, say, developing a, a Magnus Carlsen app that people could play against? Is there, are these the kind of things that you There, there is actually a Magnus Carlsen app, and I think this is exactly the way uh, uh, chess and other sports will go into, or learning. So I'm, I'm um, definitely uh, sure. And if nobody does it in the next three months, we will do it. Um, it'll be um, a personal trainer, uh, AI-based, which will uh, kind of teach you personally and say, listen, blah, blah, blah. Now there is a so, but I think it's the same with, I don't know, French language or wine uh, skills. Individual learning is uh, amazingly advanced and you can make it even more advanced and chess is a perfect sandbox for this. But um, if we develop this uh, tool, then we'll definitely sell it to all other uh, subjects, let's say. Uh, one can think of ranging from flying lessons to uh, insomnia. Who are you working with on, on developing some of this software? We have uh, two or three providers. Uh, uh, we have a development uh, team in-house. Uh, which does development for us also we work with uh, really cool AI uh, groups and uh, startups and uh, it would be nice actually to organize some sort of a VC uh, vehicle where we would not only pay them to do things but rather invest in them so we can uh, develop this and market it as well so it could be like something like this so this is what we're doing now effectively or at least trying to what's the what's the potential for chess in the next few years with, with all of that in mind 
Well, I think it's going to be a billion. Even now, it's. Uh, um, I think it's very, very big. But um, you know what? It uh, it can be a billion-dollar business, but anything can be a billion-dollar business, and most of the things are a billion-dollar business. So, for example, if we together decide to run a shelter for cats. Uh, it could become a billion-dollar business very, very quickly if we if we're good. Uh, we'll I don't know hire Jude Law and uh, Charlize Theron uh, to to market it. We'll we'll um, buy rights from a royal uh, uh, family to name them royal cats. We'll uh, I don't know. We'll implant really really cool chips and uh, we'll install this amazing stuff and. Uh, um, it'll become a billion-dollar business if we're really, really good. Um, but um, so it very much depends on uh, who's doing it. But uh, in terms of potential, it's amazing. And the fact that it's maybe the last uh, underdeveloped in a way sport out of the, the oldest sport is kind of completely. It was been forgotten. So I'm glad that lots of uh, people and companies are now entering this space and developing really cool stuff ranging from robots uh, to drones. Uh, for example, yesterday we've been trying a drone uh, to see if it can move or it can make the first move. Unfortunately, it can't. It can't pick up the piece and uh, deliver it very accurately. So we actually just got in touch with a drone expert uh, who said it, it can be done, but not here. There is a very, very cool um, technology which allows you to use a team of drones. For example, for construction, they uh, take this giant thing uh, on the 98th floor and then they install it. But it's a team of, let's say, five, ten drones. Something can be done for chess there as well, but um, there is lots of uh, stuff you can do. Tinder for chess, Mike, does that sound like something that appeals to you? Uh, absolutely not. Uh... <laughs> right, well, that is about it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thank you to Ilya Menenzon and thank you as well to Kelly Simmons. Uh, thanks to you too, Mike Long. Thank you very much, Owen. I will catch up with you again when I return from Madrid and the OTT Summit. Uh, reminder to check out ottasia.sportspromedia.com to find out how you can be at our first Asian event, all about the world of digital broadcasting. Also check out sportspromedia.com as you always should be. Look out for the next edition of the magazine and do feel free to subscribe to this podcast rate us slate us well don't slate us but uh comment and uh review and all the rest of it and yeah we'll look out for you next time bye bye